taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on Animal Welfare Certified Bone-In Beef Short Ribs, Sustainable Wild-Caught Sockeye Salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, Charcuterie and Ground Lamb. Grab an Olive Bull Bread from the Bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. So obviously when I entered this season, you know, I tried to be as honest as possible about where I was. And I kind of knew that this was going to be my last year, but I wanted to be like for sure about it before I announced the retirement or did anything like that, that that was so like final. Um, But yeah, so as the season has gone, like I said, I, I pretty much knew. And then once I saw the schedule and then once I started packing for this trip a little bit, I was like, oh, this is gonna be my last time playing in New York, my last time playing in front of my family and friends. And so that's why the timing of this is what it is. I just really felt strongly about announcing my retirement, saying it was my last year, so I could share that with my family, my friends, all the people in New York who've watched me growing up, um, so they could come and see me play for the last time in my home state. So I'm excited about that. It's also bittersweet, of course. (sighs) Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. And that voice we heard, Jess, that was a friend of the pod, Sue Bird. I mean, friend of the pod, don't you think, for sure. Oh, yeah, she listens to every episode. But, Kate, I'm, I'm giving you a, a deep sigh because it's the end of an era. It's the end of an era, Jess, for multiple reasons, because Sue Bird was not the only WNBA legend announcing her retirement this season. We also have Sylvia Falls, who is retiring. And I mean, we are talking a four-time Olympic gold medalist in Sylvia Files, seven-time WNBA All-Star, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, two-time WNBA champ. She's currently playing for the Minnesota Lynx. I mean, this is a game changer in Sylvia Files. So Sue Bird, Sylvia Files leaving the WNBA. I mean, this is a changing of the guard. And also, I was thinking about it because I've followed Sue's career since like New York days because she played on like a New York AAU team when I was in high school and everyone would talk about Sue Bird and I would kind of hate watch her sometimes when she was like a 10th grader (laughs) on the AAU circuit I'll be like everyone thinks Sue Bird is great but I'm gonna watch her she's probably not that good and every single time she would be that good and obviously has continued to be that good but the thing about Sue Bird's career that brings me, and I'm sure everyone who follows women's sports satisfaction, is that there was a moment in time, I would say like 2017, 2018, where she was not getting her due. Like she hadn't mm-hmm. transcended outside of the WNBA. A little bit here and there, but over the last couple of years, I mean, you cannot go to GQ sports Instagram feed without seeing a Sue Bird fit without seeing her on a TV show or somewhere. I mean, she has gotten her flowers, which is appropriate given what she has given back to women's basketball. Why do you think that is? I mean, maybe you don't have a hypothesis for it, but I have one. (laughs) I assume you have one, but maybe you could share it with our audience because I know we read each other's minds sometimes, but we should probably also say it out loud. (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, I think there's no denying that starting to date Megan Rapinoe and then everything that happened with Megan at the 2019 Women's World Cup with President Trump and all of that interaction, as well as the story that Megan and Sue did in ESPN about their relationship coming out. Like there was 
there was a shift in being able to see Sue Bird as more than a basketball player that sort of started mm-hmm. around that time. And then I think that interaction in 2019 around the Women's World Cup just like catapulted both of them, both Megan and Sue. And then you add on top of that the bubble season of 2020 and mm-hmm. how the WNBA really transcended in those moments. So I think it's like all of those variables combined. And then just the core foundational piece that Sue Bird is fucking cool. And yeah, it's she's about awesome. time that people realize that. So let's pay homage to a legend, Sue Bird, in her final season and tell everyone what else is on the podcast today. It actually makes sense that we are talking about the retirement of Sue Bird and Sylvia Fowles on the same week as the anniversary of Title IX because they are certainly athletes who have come of age in the modern era of Title IX. So we pay homage to Sue and Sylvia. And on today's episode of Off the Looking Glass, we have an extra extra about a moment from the Fountain Blue Miami Hotel in 1981 that would change the course of women's college sports. And also on the show today, I mean, Jess, as a former soccer player, I mean, take it away. We have Christy Mewis. And we might revisit some previous season's uh, rankings in a rabbit hole, but I don't want to spoil it. So stick around, listen to that, and do not skip the ads. Our guest today is a member of the U.S. Women's National Team and a midfielder for Gotham FC of the NWSL. She won a bronze medal with Team USA at the 2020 Summer Olympics. And she's on the roster for the upcoming CONCACAF Championships in Mexico. As you'll hear, we also ask her about her relationship with Australian superstar Sam Kerr. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Christy Mewis. So, big news. The big news that we have to ask you about, of course, is what are your thoughts on the reboot to A League of Their Own? I mean, I'm assuming you saw this preview, right? Or no? Uh, no, wait, what are you okay, talking about? Okay, all right, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> no, that's that's actually perfect. Um, <laughs> do you Did you ever watch A League of the Realm when you were growing up? I feel like I must have. A League of, what's it about again? Like, I feel <laughs> like I must so have. so good. <laughs> it was Sorry. from, like, it was from 93, 94. It's a very old movie, and it's about professional baseball, and it's, like, Gina Davis and Tom Hanks. It's, it's, yeah, they, they just, I've definitely Amber, seen it, not in like so many years, but yes, I've definitely seen it. Yeah. No, Amazon just, they announced they're doing a reboot with like a lot of gay storylines and like way more like, you know, people of color and the trailer just dropped last week. So I was just testing you to see if you were like a League of Their Own fan. It's a running joke on our show, but you okay, failed. Yeah, I failed. I guess failed. I failed that test. Yeah. Okay. Let's just <laughs> stick. Let's stick with as awkward as we can start this and just ask you, like, between you and Sam, who is more into PDA? Oh, me, like for <laughs> sure. Like me, like I have to like, not like beg her, but she like, I don't really think it's like fully her thing, but I am like, so like, have you ever heard of like the love language test? Yes. yes. I took that for the first time, so, like three days ago. I had never yeah, heard of it before. So, I know. So we took that one and mine was like physical touch, like through and through, <laughs> like just like through the roof. And hers was quality time, but also physical touch. But yeah, I was like just through the roof physical touch. So like, I am just like, 
I am like the ringleader of the PDA and I'm like totally fine with it. And like, she probably gets so annoyed with me, but like, I just don't care. Well, she posts some too. I was wondering maybe like hers is acts of service and that's her act of service is like reciprocating the posting of PDA pics. Yes. I think that she like does it because it like makes me happy because it's like what I want. Like, do you know what I mean? Like she does it for me kind of like we've had this talk before because it is so funny. But um, yeah, it probably it probably is her little acts of service. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I don't know why, but I would have thought it was the opposite. I but I like I really maybe Australia. Maybe I was just thinking, oh, Australians like are they more freewheeling? Like why do I think this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like I think she is like like a little like touchy feely and like PDA in her own way. But I think I'm just like through the roof like a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, we might circle back around to that conversation, but like we'll dive into a little soccer since the the roster was announced and even like looking up just your history with the national team. What is it like to be at this moment now where you're like solid with the national team when you had that chunk of time at like 2013 to 2018 where like you weren't like you didn't get a call up or whatever that time frame was like, what is it like now to kind of be back in in that group? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the hardest part about getting to the national team is getting to it. Like, I think that that's like the biggest struggle that everyone goes through. Like, actually getting your call in is like the hardest part. And I think that since I had been in before and then I like started to get a little bit older, that it was like even harder to kind of like break back into it because I think a lot of people kind of like wrote me off, which is fine. I mean, I kind of like wrote myself off a bit. But yeah, I definitely had that huge chunk of time. I had to do a lot of like self-reflection, a lot of realization. And yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously the best feeling in the world being back with the team, but it definitely is the hardest actually getting there and getting the call in. So I feel like it was probably like one and a half, two years leading into my like second call in was like probably the hardest I've ever worked and like the most that I've ever had to prove, which I think is why when you get there, it's not easy to integrate. It's definitely not easy, but I think I will still say that I think like actually getting your first call in and everything that you do and up till that is definitely the hardest. And then once you get there, it is hard because it's stressful. Like you want to stay there. You want to do everything you possibly can to stay there. So you kind of like have nothing to lose in the beginning and then you have everything to lose when you're there. So I think it's kind of like, it is like a stress that I think that we all go through, but I mean, it's obviously everyone on the national, like it's our goal to be on that team. So it's just, it's everything that you've ever wanted, but it definitely is. It's hard to get there and it's hard to stay there. So it sounds cliche to say this because it seems like this is being said every four years, but do you feel like this is the most competitive, the qualifying roster has ever been and in, in trying out for the team and getting on the roster? Yeah. I mean, I obviously, I'm still, uh, the girls who have been there for 10, 15 years, however long, like they probably know better than I do, but I think just with the league getting so competitive and the team is just, I mean, it's so hard to pick a squad. Like everyone is so good. That's in the pool. There's probably like 30, like 40 girls who are like consistently in the pool. And it's just, it's crazy. Like it, I don't know how the coaches pick a roster. Like it's must be so difficult. Cause I think we're just, it's just so competitive and everybody is so good. So I can obviously say that I think it is definitely like 
the hardest roster to make right now, just with how many good players there are. But yeah, I can't imagine being black though in Milan and the staff trying to pick. Okay. I have two follow-ups from that. The first one is something that you mentioned, which is how does having a healthy competitive pro soccer league in the U S help keep that level of competition up going into world cup years? Yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously so important and again, like every team in the league is really good. Like it's not like a lot of the other leagues in the world where, you know, there's like two or three really good teams and they kind of beat everybody below them. Like I feel like on any given day, any team in the NWSL could beat another team. So the league's kind of wide open. And I think that's why it's so cool because every team is just so good and has such quality players. And I think that that just is like still pushing um, still pushing, you know, the world in women's soccer to get better and to kind of like get on that level. So my other follow-up about the roster would be that there's a lot of like, call it controversy or, or chatter about certain names being left out and certain veterans being included. So what's your take on it as someone who's kind of in between both groups of like brand new young players and veterans who've been on the team for multiple cycles. Like how does having veterans on the team help and how does having like fresh blood come in kind of help keep people on their toes too? Yeah, I think it's definitely a balance because you want to have like some new fresh legs, young players, you know, like raw talent coming in and you need that in your squad. But you also need players like Megan Rapino. You need players like Alex Morgan, who just kind of bring the wisdom and kind of bring like, oh, I've been here before energy. Um, so I think it's definitely like a tricky balance. Like, how do you how do you know how much to take of both? But I think that's definitely not in my job <laughs> description. And that's up to Blacko. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's super important to kind of, you know, like fluctuate with wisdom and then with youth. But I think we have a really good squad going to qualifying. And I'm just really, really excited about it. Like, I can't wait to see what this group can do. When you said earlier that the the two years before your most recent call up was like the hardest you've ever worked. And then you kind of alluded that like maybe not that you doubted yourself, but that you had gone through tough times about being called up again. Like what during that time frame, when you think about it, like what were you doing differently in those two years when you said you were working your hardest versus maybe like the few years prior to that? Yeah, I feel like I say this. I mean, I'm sure you guys have probably already heard me say this in something, but I feel like I am always saying this is that like, I've realized it now because I've stepped away from it and I'm out of it. And I'm realizing that that was like in my past, like what I was doing, but I was like, obviously super upset when I did get cut from the national team. I think I got cut when I was like 23. I was playing outside back. I don't know what I'm doing at outside back. So I think you just kind of like lose a lot of confidence. And then I lot, lost a lot of like motivation, but I would never admit it to myself. I was just kind of like coasting, like being okay with just like being okay. Like I was like an average league player. I was just getting by, like I was happy with just like winning some games, losing some games, like being average. And I was like fine with that. And then I think the moment that triggered me to like realize what I actually wanted out of my career was when I tore my ACL and it kind of woke me up a little bit. And I realized like, Christy, like, what are you doing with yourself? Like, this isn't what you want. Like you want to get back on the national team. Like you want to be one of the best midfielders in the league. Like you want to make an impact like you that this is what you want. So I think I, for years just chose to kind of like feel bad for myself and like not admit to myself what I truly wanted. And um, I was definitely triggered when I tore my ACL 
And I just like realized that I did want to get back with the national team and like I wasn't going to stop until I did. When, because I know Sue Bird a, a little bit just from basketball. And when she and Megan first got together, they would kind of tell this story about how Sue had been super disciplined for like the previous six to eight years, like eating, training in a way that maybe Megan hadn't until they got together. Is there anything that either you have learned from Sam or Sam has learned from you about the game and how to approach things? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, I feel like Sam is very like mellow and she's very, um, she just like handles things so well. Whereas I think I get like wound up a bit with things. So if like something's not going well, like I'll overthink things, but she kind of like brings me back down to earth a little bit and just kind of like seeing the way that she carries herself with her career kind of like inspires me to be that way too. Like, I think that she just has such like a carefree, like attitude towards it, but also like at the same time, she's like the hardest worker in the entire world and like, will do anything for her team and anything to win. So I think I've definitely tried to like, I've tried to like mellow out a bit and just like enjoy what I'm doing. Whereas I think that's something that she does every single day. Sometimes I think I just like look into things too much, take things like way too seriously where it's like hindering what I'm actually doing. Whereas I think she's the complete opposite and it actually makes her flourish. So I think that that's something I've definitely learned from her and I'm trying to incorporate in my life. Yeah. Wait, did she learn anything from you? Oh, God, you'd have to ask her, but like probably not. How to post dope pictures at the Soho house. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dope pictures, dope pictures at the Soho house. How to post, how to post dope pictures at the the Soho house. Yeah. Kate, do you hear that sound? No, what is it? What are you doing? I'll do it a little louder. Do you hear it? Oh, okay, yeah, what are you up to over there? That's me putting in Christy Mewis's Instagram handle (laughs) on my Instagram app because we're in a rabbit hole talking about her Instagrams with her girlfriend, Sam Kerr, who is Mm -hmm. one of the most accomplished young soccer players in the world, footballers, because she is Australian, Mm -hmm. I should Mm -hmm. say, and it's led us down this rabbit hole because we need to reevaluate something that we did we in season one and we need to yeah, reassess. I mean, so I'm doing some research right now. This was certainly one of our most important episodes when mm-hmm. we we both, we each revealed our lists. Really crucial lists. Like, I mean, it's important that we update these regularly because of the importance and the gravitas of these lists. And the list is our favorite power sports couples. You know, so I mean, now that we have Christy and Sam Kerr together, like seriously on the Instagram, it's fire. I don't know. I'm reevaluating my list. I don't know if this has really shaken up your thinking as well. I actually never had a list. I just kind of agreed with your list. So let's get your reordered list. Like Christy and Sam have been dating for a while now, but like you said, the last few months they've They've upped the ante with the IG selfies and and whatnot. So it's led to a a reshuffling of your list. Give us your updated list and I'll tell you if I still agree with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that listeners need to know now is that now that I've seen Christy and and Sam's Instagram love, 
they're sliding in at number three for me. Whoa. Number three of my list of power couples in sports. Um, and I, I want to keep number two for me at Mia, Ham, and Nomar out of respect. Mm. Uh, honestly, just like a, a tip of the cap to history. They don't come across our social feeds at all, but they're there. And they're doing the good work. Mia is incredibly involved with Angel City and launching that team. I mean, you just... You have to, especially in this episode where we're talking about Title IX, you have to give those nods to history when you see them. And then number one, I mean, unchanged. And I I don't know who could come for my number one spot of Sue Bird and Megan Rapino. I mean, as fire as Sam and Christie's Instagram is, I mean, the amount of style, iconic looks that these two have dished out, even since we revealed our list last season, it's endless stylish icon with Sue Bird and Megan Rapino. Well, so, I mean, I'm sorry that I kept you from sharing your list with with our people. Where are you at with this? I mean, I, I think we're exactly aligned. I don't know if we have women's soccer bias or or yeah. what, because we do have a lot of soccer players and, you know, one basketball player and one baseball player in our in our top three list. But I think I agree with you. I mean, maybe you could put JJ and Kayla Watt in there somewhere. I mean... Yep. I know Steffi Graf and Andre Agassi were on our list before, mm-hmm. but Kate, I'm I think I'm partial to the soccer players. So I'm gonna just have to say I agree with you. I know it's a cop out. I I don't wanna be controversial. I don't wanna pit us against each other, but No, of course not. You know what? Actually, you know who I would add to my top three list of athlete relationships? Maybe I'd slide them in at number two. I don't know who I'm kicking out then. There's this yoga instructor that I love named Catherine <laughs> and her wife, Kate, who played yeah. basketball. And they're probably one of my favorite sports couples. Yeah, you should check out their Instagrams. I mean, they're always bringing the heat. And I they mean, they have that, great dogs. They're old oh and my they're God. adorable. The, the frosted faces on those dogs, people should check them out. And then it brings up another question of whether, whether yoga is a sport. Maybe we tackle that in season yes. three of Off the Looking Glass. Okay, we'll tackle that in season three. <laughs> Maybe it's not technically a sport, but it's athletic. So it is. I'm putting you and Catherine on the list. All right, well, let's bounce back up to Christy before you change your mind. <laughs> um, I think one of the one of the storylines going into the last World Cup was was obviously the equal pay lawsuit. And it seemed like the team felt like you needed to win or at least like perform really well to prove why that needed to happen. And now that that's somewhat settled, like you have your, you know, your team's getting paid equally and the prize money is being pulled. What kind of pressure, if any, do you feel heading into the next World Cup now that this is like a little bit in the rear view mirror? Yeah, it obviously is pressure to perform, but I also think that... I think a lot of people who like worked so hard for this feel a sense of relief and feel a sense of like, wow, like we deserve this. Like this is what we deserve. So I think it was like a stress and also kind of like a, it didn't like make us like feel bad about ourselves, but like we deserve to be paid the way that the men do. So I think that it was almost like a little sense of relief, like, wow, now we can like do what we've been doing. We can crush it. We can win these things. We can like win qualified and we can win the, we can win the world cup, like knowing that like our federation backs us, knowing that, you know, everyone under us soccer backs us and they think that we're so valuable. So I think it's, it's kind of like, it almost gives us like a, like, I feel a little bit more confident now that, you know, people believe in us and that we're getting what we deserve. As someone who kind of grew up 
I'm like nine years older than you. So the stories about the 99ers are endless, you know, because I was a teenager when it happened. And I'm just starting to realize that even players who have been on the national team for a while maybe didn't live the 99ers in the same way that like the stories tell us. Where do you fall on that? Uh, like which generation of U.S. women's national team, which team was your was your 99er? They sort of blew your mind about how they played. Yeah, mine was definitely the 99ers. Um, okay, we're still there, yeah. Jess. We still got it. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, that World Cup game was just like everything to me. Like, I still think about it all the time. Like, that really, like, triggered the way that my sister and I kind of, like, took on our career. Like, that game meant so much to us. And, like, I'll always remember everything about that day, everything that happened. Like, my sister and I had it on what, what's it called? VHR? Like, what's a tape called? Is it a VHR? VHS. VHS. Kate's going to go like, yeah, we like, had that tape and we would rewatch it constantly. <laughs> like, I think if I still watch the game now, I could tell you exactly what's going to happen. Like every 20 seconds. Like, it's just, it's crazy the way that that game affected a lot of the girls in my generation. Yeah. Yeah. So we had Carly Lloyd on earlier this season off the looking glass and she had some very like specific perspectives about the the ways she had seen seen the differences of getting called up for her I think it was like maybe oh three and so it was like there was Foudy still there Mia Hamm still there and basically like the bloodshed that took place to try to like make a team then versus like what she was sort of calling more maybe a more pampered approach to the U.S. Women's National Team over the last few years. I mean, you've seen enough of it across like a decade plus. Have you seen a shift in like the approach and how camps are? Or is this just like a generational thing? Yeah, I mean, it is. I feel like I have both perspectives because I was with the team when I was like 19 to 22, 23. So like I was there with like, Carly and with Abby Wambach and with all of them during the Pia Tom Sermani phase, like a little bit of Jill Ellis. And then I'm obviously back now when Blacko's been here. And it is definitely different, but I don't think it's necessarily like I know that sometimes it's seen as like a bad thing. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Like I I didn't get my first cap for three years, whereas girls now will get called in and they'll get their cap, their first camp. So it's definitely different to see how like things have changed and things have developed, but I don't think it's a bad thing at all because I think it just shows that the game is evolving. Women's soccer is evolving and the team is evolving in, I think, a really good way. I mean, we're getting equal pay. We have a league that's been around for 10 I think it's 10 years now that's actually stuck. It's making a huge impact in the world and in women's sports. So I think that it's definitely evolved and it's definitely changed, but it's a different game now. And I think that it's just super important to kind of keep like moving with the game in the direction that it's going. So I do think it is, it is different than it was 10 years ago, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's probably a good thing. There's a lot of talk always about like the culture of the national team. If you could, if you could describe the culture and say like three words, what would those be? Oh God. (laughs) Um, Competitive, ruthless, and just kind of like winning, like just like a winning mindset. And I think that obviously like it's fun. Like we, we have so much fun. Like I love all the girls, like we have a great time, but I think that the team is just so, so competitive and everybody like 
wants that spot. Like everyone just like wants it so bad. So I think it's, it, it is such a good thing because it's so competitive. It's so ruthless. And all of us just like want to win. We want to win at everything. Like we're the, we're the most competitive women soccer players, um, you know, like in America, like the, we are like the 20, 30 girls who are like psychos about winning. So I think when you bring all of that together, like, yes, sometimes it gets like super, super intense. And um, sometimes the culture is good. Sometimes the culture is bad. But I think at the end of the day, we all have a common goal and that's to just win. Like we just want to win. That's all we want. I think it's a good thing. I mean, like I, everybody wants to be a part of this team. It's the team that we like look up to our entire lives and we all have that winning mindset. So I think it's a good thing. It's just about managing it and making it work and just having the best team in the world. So at the risk of being awkward again, Christy, like speaking of ruthless, between you and your sister, who got shotgun growing up? <laughs> That's what you um, call Everybody calls it shotgun, right? Like yeah. that. Okay. And how would you determine it? <laughs> we would do it like whoever touches the car first gets it so like we would both like you couldn't start running until you like saw the car and then if you touched the car first you got shotgun so we would like always race to the car we'd always like fight to get in the front seat we were just like super we were obvious I mean we were obviously so competitive like as sisters and we were so close in age so yeah I mean I'm not gonna lie like I won a lot of the times like probably 95 <laughs> percent of the time <laughs> Yeah. But I was older and just like, I, I don't know. I like usually got what I wanted. Were you were you like the bullying older sister? Because yeah. like yeah. for me and my sister, we both played soccer growing up. And for a while, like she would beat up on me because I was the youngest one. And then I ended up becoming like taller and bigger than her. So then I would kick her ass all the time. And I still do. <laughs> and she knows it's just because she was a bully to me when I was little. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely was like that to my sister too. <laughs> but like I just... You know, when you're just young and that's just how you act and like, yeah. So I was definitely, I was definitely like that. Like I was definitely like a little overpowering for Sam, but I mean, look at her now. She's incredible. So she turned yeah. out fine. So I must've done a good job. <laughs> yeah. You, you taught her everything she knows. So that's important. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we got you out of here in enough time. Thanks for joining us. And also, of course, go watch a league of their own. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Right? Thanks, Christy. All right. Bye. Thanks Thank guys. You. Attention, sports fans. The NCAA has a major announcement. Oh, my. No, it's not an apology. Obviously. And it's not a promise of transparency either, so quit asking. In an attempt to offset the astronomical cost of our football programs, the NCAA is embracing a new kind of athlete, one that requires a little less resources. That's why we're announcing three brand new sports. It's a budgetary shell game designed to keep your money well within the boundaries of the NCAA's discretion. With our exciting new sports programs, every student is a potential athlete. And due to the rising cost of higher education, for whatever reason, we know many of these potential student athletes live at home with their parents. So we've designed our new sports programs to meet young athletes where they are. Give it up for your three new favorite collegiate sports. Rummy Cube, leaf raking and getting a comcast internet package that excludes a landline welcome to comcast 
If you've ever spent any amount of time on the phone with Comcast customer service, you know that takes agility, tenacity, and an unwavering determination to win. Please hold, and we will be with you shortly. Let's be honest. Whether you watch or not, it's of no concern to us. We're just happy that our precious little football men get another chartered flight to their away game. So sign up today and become the next victim. I mean, member of the NCAA family. You're one of us now. What are you waiting for? Join us. For four consecutive years while playing basketball for the University of Colorado, we played in the NCAA tournament. Twice, we hosted the first two rounds. I can remember all the blue and white NCAA paraphernalia plastered around the Coors Event Center. The Aquafina water coolers, an NCAA brand partner that replaced our faded Gatorade ones. And the NCAA officials that milled about, making sure we didn't touch a ball until precisely 30 minutes before tip-off. Not once in those years did I ever wonder if the NCAA was doing right by us. That they were was somehow naively a given. I did notice that both times we advanced to the Sweet 16, the gear we were given was measly in comparison to what our men's team was given just for actually making the field of 64. But I never wondered why or what other bigger things might be amiss if I looked harder. Then I grew up and started asking questions and started to realize the truth. And then came the viral video during the 2021 NCAA tournament from Oregon's Sedona Prince. You know the one. I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. So how did we get here? How is it that college sports, a realm supposedly governed by Title IX, a federal law that states unequivocally that men's and women's sports should be funded equally, how is it that even in this space, the NCAA treats female athletes not just as second-class citizens, but as a kind of nuisance? History really is important. We see what happens when we forget history. That was Donna Lopiano the first director of women's athletics at the University of Texas and the former CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation. In 1975, at 29 years old, just two weeks into the job at Texas, Donna would testify in Congress against the proposed Tower Amendment, which would have exempted revenue-producing sports like football and men's basketball from compliance with Title IX. I mean, this would have essentially taken the teeth out of the amendment. And that's really where this glance into the rearview mirror begins. Because the Tower Amendment wasn't just the brainchild of Texas Senator John Tower. It was championed by famed coaches like Alabama's Bear Bryant. And it was a collaborative effort with the NCAA, which in 1975 didn't govern women's sports and had, in fact, poured millions of dollars into a fat war chest in the hopes of striking down Title IX. Obviously, that didn't work. At every turn, Title IX wasn't just upheld, but, at least by the letter of the law, strengthened. But the important part in what I just said is this. 
For nearly a decade, the NCAA did everything it could to torpedo Title IX. They always portrayed Title IX as a zero-sum game, that if you gave women the opportunity to play, men's football would lose, somebody would lose. So while men's sports were governed by the NCAA and its longtime executive director, Walter Byers, who was a businessman, not an educator, women's college sports were governed by the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the AIAW. And here we are at the start of the final game at the AIAW 1973 National Tournament. It's Rachel jumping with Big Terry Shank, number 12 for Immaculata. The crowd quiets, here they go. That was the bootstrap TV broadcast of the opening tip in front of a standing room only crowd of what would be Immaculata College's second consecutive AIAW title. Now, the AIAW and the NCAA, well, these two organizations had very different ideas about what college sports should be. Men's athletics grew up you know, in the early 1900s, not being governed by educators, but by businessmen who were you know, interested in using a football team game or row, a rowing event at the, the opening of a new branch to the railroad ending at a resort site. And it was never an extracurricular activity that was overseen by faculty members. The women's sport was just the opposite. These physical educators were bound and determined. They were students of history. They saw what commercial sport did to men's sports, the deaths in football, the absence of any guardrails, the exploitation of players for private gain. They saw this and they were bound and determined that this wasn't going to happen to women. And for decades, it didn't. Ironically, what changed the equation was Title IX. Title IX brought money into women's sports. And it was pretty big money. The first thing that institutions uh, did, knowing that they now had to spend money on women's athletics, is they threw these separately administered women's athletic departments. Remember how I said earlier that Donna was the women's athletic director for Texas? Well, back then, for a shining moment, Women governed women's sports, even if Texas's men's budget at the time was $2.5 million and Donna's was $128,000, which was funded in part by the campus's Coke machines. Anyway, back to Donna. They threw these separately administered women's athletic departments under the aegis of men's athletics. So no more physical education leadership. You know, it was just submerged under men who were not exactly the protectors. The interest in men's athletics at the time was to control the cost of equal opportunity. Okay, so let's reset the table. Title IX has passed in 1972. The NCAA has then spent years and millions trying to fight it in Congress and in the courts to no avail. College presidents, to save themselves the headache, have placed the previously self-governing women's athletics beneath the men's athletic director. The NCAA has realized that Title IX is here to stay and that the only way to control this impending equality is to be the ones managing its distribution. They only did let's control it after they lost. (laughs) So it wasn't, oh, they changed their mind. They lost. And now, realizing that there was going to be equal opportunity, separate sex sport, they just said, we're going to run it. 
At the 1981 convention, the NCAA sets its sights on the AIAW. By then, the AIAW had 961 schools under its umbrella. It wasn't small. And it was steadily growing, including proving itself as a viable TV commodity. I mean, the 1980 women's basketball title game actually outrated most of that year's NBA playoff action. And the AIAW finally had a TV contract. But the NCAA, like any good monopoly, had a whole lot of money and TV connections to throw around. And many young coaches on the women's side were in favor of ditching the AIAW for the NCAA, believing the affiliation with the men would bring exposure and prestige. I think women's athletics was a victim of, if we can get on television, then people will know how good we are and we're going to be important. And I think coaches in particular were wanting to know that women were really good. And it wasn't a a motivation of more money and salary or commercial success. It more of people should know that this is, you know, we're good. We're absolutely good. Here, let's go to a Sports Illustrated article to describe what happened at that convention in 1981, which of course Donna was present for. The ultimate showdown came in January 1981 at the NCAA convention at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. Ah, Miami. Why is it always Miami? Okay, back to the article. The debate on whether the NCAA should hold championships for women was intense. The vote was a 124-124 tie. The recount showed that the Nays had won 128-127. As Lopiano and her victorious allies met with writers, the pro-NCAA side came up with a plan. They realized that Cal had voted no at the urging of its women's athletic director. When she left the room, the NCAA backers approached the Bears faculty athletics representative and convinced him to introduce a motion to reconsider. The motion passed and a new vote was called. Sensing the shifting winds, the delegates approved the measure by a count of 137-117, and that brought about one of the greatest ironies of Title IX. It indirectly led to women losing the authority to govern their own athletics. A quote from the next day's New York Times article. This marks the death knell of the AIAW, one delegate said moments later. The NCAA has just taken over. Probably for good. Some people could say, well, what is the price? What's the price you pay to not control your own destiny? And that was the choice. And it's hard for especially the young, the young buck coaches of the day, right? They hadn't lived that control of destiny, right? They thought they were in control and they didn't find out they weren't until they got into this and you know, ultimately experienced what they did in terms of they weren't equally treated. And so fast forward to the 2021 NCAA tournament and everyone's shock and surprise at seeing the disparities between the men's and women's tournaments. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. The foxes were guarding the headhouse. That's the only description that you could have. They were the last people that were going to fight for gender equity. You lost this 90% female leadership entity. And when they went to men's athletics, nobody got to be the athletic director. They gave the athletic directorship to the men. So they were effectively silenced. That viral moment in 2021 has its origins in that Miami conference room in 1981. Here was Donna's reaction to Sedona Prince's video. Really? 
it was perfect. You couldn't have designed a comedy to illustrate reality, right? <laughs> In quite the way they did. What an accident of history. It was like the ultimate outcome of Title IX was this strong woman who was not going to take a lesser treatment. And it took that long for it to come into the public view. Title IX changed the course of history for young women. And acknowledging its landmark birthday, 50 years old, is imperative. But as we look around our sports world and look to the future, to what we hope includes growth and investment, we must first look back and understand the soil, not always fertile, out of which women's sports has grown. Only with this knowledge can we avoid the mistakes of the past and move forward with clearer eyes. So happy birthday, Title IX, and may the next 50 years bring true equity. Well, Kate, well said. I've seen a lot of coverage of the 50-year anniversary of Title IX that's been really supportive and optimistic. And I think that that is great. And we should all be like, wow, thank, this is great that this happened 50 years ago. But I think it is also important to recognize some of the unintended consequences of this legislation and ways that we can make it better. So I like that piece because that was never something I had ever heard of before. The question that I keep asking myself is how many people out there just assume because Title IX passed as a law in 1972 and we have this passive belief that if something passed as a law, well, then it's being enforced. And that's not the case. I mean, even from day one, players at, at say, Stanford University they had to go to their athletic department, actually camp out in his office weekly to say, we have a gym where no, no spectators can fit into it because there's no seats. We buy our own tape. I mean, it wasn't like Title IX passed and then the money just flowed. I mean, women had to consistently file lawsuits. And to this day, as Jess, you and I always talk about offline, it's not like women's sports are equal in college sports. They have been put under the, you know, as as Donna said, like the aegis of men's leadership with the express purpose of limiting, limiting equality to as little as they could possibly get away with. And that is the story. And that is the history of Title IX is trying to ensure that it's actually not followed at every turn you can get away with it. And that's the and then and as, as we've said, like the unintended consequences of that of money being poured in is that like men wanted to control it. And so you have another sports entity, you know, like that story we told about the ABL and the WNBA where women aren't governing women's sports. And what happens when that's the case? What are the trickle down like impacts on how it's sold, on how it's marketed, on how it's valued? 
There was this great USA Today article that came out recently that was an investigation on how a a lot of schools, like over 80 percent of schools, can can circumvent Title IX and count male practice players as female athletes and do all these different things so that they're not actually complying, which I I think is fascinating and and people should definitely check out. If we're going to celebrate the 50-year anniversary, we should be cognizant of how we can make this even better hopefully in the future, and recognize a lot of the blind spots. Yeah, one of the things that Donna Lopiano, who who was in that Extra Extra, one of the things she continually was talking about, and I included a couple of these elements, was how we don't necessarily, we didn't necessarily need or want women's sports to look like men's sports at mm-hmm. the college level. And that was something you and I talked about even when Kim Mulkey yes. left Baylor and signed like at our, LSU. Our first interaction ever on air, I think, was, was yeah. when that happened. And, you know, I, I forget the the dollar amount of her contract. It was like but, you $25 know, like, million dollars or yes. something. Yeah. And everyone was like, equality for women. And, you know, on one hand, of course you want, we talk about invest in women, but there is a, and we should continue talking about this on season three of Off the Looking Glass, of like the the various effects of Title IX, both positive and negative, because women were governing women's sports and they saw that men's sports on the college side had been exploitative and commercialized to the nth degree. And the effects on the athletes, they could see those in advance back in the 60s, in the 70s. And they're like, that's not a great system. And yet women's sports got shuttled under that system. And I don't think it's a huge leap to say that that is tied into like why rates of anxiety and depression among college athletes is on the rise. Same with the general population, but this is not a system that benefits the athletes. And we talk about it being a broken system. And one thing we don't talk about underneath that umbrella of broken system is how female athletes for a long time weren't governed by it. And then they got shuttled under it in 1982. And like Mm -hmm. that exploitative nature, even though they're not football and men's basketball, like that system still pressures them. And, you know, applies to them. And so that also is one offspring of Title IX. And this is not to say that we don't, like, we're not happy Title IX existed. It's just- Of course, right. It's just like looking at it with clearer eyes. When you love something, you want it to be better. And it's like- Yes. I feel like this conversation has led us back to like the Scooby-Doo reveal where we pull the mask off and it's like, it was capitalism (laughs) the whole time because (laughs) inherently these systems are, they exist to make people money and that's why they're often exploitative. So- like you said, when when you put the female athletics ecosystem into that and it's already something that's devalued by a lot of people because of mainly misogyny and, and racism and homophobia, I don't know what other words, pejorative words we can use yeah. <laughs> to describe people's opinions of, of female athletes. Yeah, you end up with a system that is not going to protect the most vulnerable and the, and the people that the system doesn't view as able to make it money. Yep. All right, should we um, should we tell the people who made this Title Nine? Well, I mean, what even is this episode? This is like a mishmash of Sue Bird, <laughs> Title Nine. I mean, it, I think it's all yeah, it's all under the umbrella of Title Nine because I mean, Sue Bird is a bit. Everybody who plays women's sports in the U.S. is like is a legacy of Title Nine. So maybe we call this our Title Nine episode, Jess. Who helped us make it? Well, we should thank Christy Mewis for coming on the show. We should mm-hmm. thank. Joel Schupack for sound designing and editing 
the show, we should thank our executive producer, Carl Scott, for yeah. being our executive producer. Yeah. We should thank Sue Bird for being a friend of the pod and, yes. and, and inspiring us and congratulating her on her final season in the WNBA. I mean, we maybe like a tangential thanks to Sam Kerr for participating in I was thinking in Christie's yeah. PDA. I think we yeah. should definitely thank her. Yeah. We thank you for producing the show as well as co-hosting it. And nameless numberhead, as always, the named numberheads of Henry and Mari making us our sketch comedy for Off the Looking Glass. See you next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.